So good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. This statement is very important today because we're going to talk about uh, a very intense passage and Paul launches into dealing with uh, the problems in the Corinthian church targeting two groups of people today. And there's so much in the text that uh, they're going to cover, but the background is not there, so it's easy to misunderstand. But let me just tell you who are the two groups of people who, is, who Paul is going to target. Okay. Uh, first category, maybe just for a poll here, uh, help me if this, okay? Uh, first category is, if you consider yourself affluent, means you have most things in life, okay? Versus you have nothing, that means you're poor, right? So how many of you, just a raise of hands, right, will consider yourself, you have most things or you're okay to do, affluent versus if you're poor, nothing uh, you really have nothing to eat, even. How many of you consider yourself affluent? Raise your hands. Wow. So many poor people. Uh. Okay, never. Okay, never mind. Uh, so, this is one group. Uh. Second group, uh, this one is even more largely challenging. Okay? Uh, we shall see uh, the volume of people by the sound here that is being made. If you are a female, say woman. One, two, three. Okay. If you are a man, say amen. Okay. I think we need to have peace in our hearts today. You can see how many will be offended, right? Let's go to God in prayer, okay? God, I know that this is your living truth, but protect the messenger as I speak. May they hear your voice over mine and go beyond the surface issues to hear what real church ought to be. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone say, Amen. Now there's a lot to cover, but uh, just to prepare for this sermon today, these are the resources that, uh, that I had to draw from. So there's quite a lot. Okay? Uh, you'll see some of the quotes coming up as well. So let's dive straight into it. Because after dealing with freedom and rights as a believer, Paul launches to deal with three issues with corporate worship. And the three issues are head covering, holy communion, and the use of spiritual gifts. Now we're going to deal with Head covering and holy communion today. So there's a lot to cover. It's almost two sermons in one chapter, and we're going to deal with that. And the next two weeks, you're going to hear from the different pastors about the use of spiritual gifts. Let's go to the first one, and let's see what Paul says. Okay, and he says this: I praise you for remembering me in everything, for holding on to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a uh, disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Let me pause here. Da, da, da. Okay. 
it's starting to get a bit challenging. But what are we noticing here so far? You see, because of the newfound freedom, women in Corinthian church were praying and prophesying. Now, Paul isn't against women praying or prophesying in church. Okay, let me just say this. Peace with you, okay, women. Uh, Acts 2.18, this is an acceptable practice. So, Paul isn't against women praying and prophesying. The issue here is very specific about head coverings. And women not covering themselves while praying and prophesying in corporate worship. That's the problem. That's what Paul is going after. Now, let me say this. We can't tell from the text why. It seems that for some reason, the way the women did it then, they were inappropriate and dishonoring and it caused divisions within the church. How come? Now, uh, two books that have helped me understand better were these two written by Ben Redrington, one of the New Testament scholars, uh, and it gave a background, two books, one is a First Corinthians commentary, and as well as another one, Women in the Earliest Church, so he wrote a whole book about it, it gave us a background on head covering and religion in the Roman cities of the time. There was a good amount of literature uh, drawn and covered, I'm just going to explain from this, uh, just to give you a background, okay, so I just want to give credits uh, to the author here. So there, a lot of uh, information is about Roman setting, how people dress, particularly in worship. Now, I'm going to show you a picture here. I don't know whether you can see clearly. This picture clearly shows a woman in head covering rather in hair. Okay, so he had a head, she had a head covering, bringing a sacrifice before the Roman god, Mars, the god of war during that time. So, this is common culture. So, for women, let me say this. Head covering during then, or women during then, head covering was not just done by those taking part, but those who were present and active in a ritual or worship setting. So, women do, do wear head covering in worship settings during that time. And also in Roman culture, it is common for Romans, both male and female, to wear headdressing during that time. But for Romans especially, to uncover their head in the presence of superior or social superiors as a sign of respect and honour. So they do undress their head here as a sign of honour. So just like how some guys in some cultures take off their heads and they bow, right? Correct? Okay. Uh, as a sign of respect and honour. Uh, it's still in our culture today. So they do that in those days. That's part of what the book says um, they have read. But because this was also Greco-Roman, the Greek and the Roman culture, okay, uh, times of the Greek and the Roman then, the Greeks and the Romans do differentiate themselves apart from one another, okay, distinctively. Greeks often identify themselves through their speech and education, like philosophers, right? They like to do that. But the Romans would distinguish themselves by what they wore, especially in worship settings. Okay? Uh, the Romans would have a habit of wearing head apparels, like headgear, in worship to tell them apart from the Greeks. So in the both in the cultic setting, in the pagan worship setting, and also in church services, that's how 
widely adopted is the culture. Now, it's like today, okay? Today, maybe, uh, and they both worship together, right? But it's like today. How many of you are Manchester United fans? Raise your hands. Hey, don't be shy, leh. If you're a fan, raise your hands. Okay? Okay, I see some. How many of you are Liverpool fans? Raise your hands. Yeah, okay. Divisive, huh? Divisive, huh? Okay? But we, we love one another. So, the culture is something like that, right? A true Man U fan and a supporter would never ever don a Liverpool jersey or sing, walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you never walk alone together. You never see, okay, that no man you fan will ever sing, right? That's how, but we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, we love one another, right? Thank God for the blood of Christ today. Otherwise, blood shed in church, right? Yeah. But that's how it is, like, in the Roman culture, uh, Greco-Roman, the Romans and the Greeks, they, they distinctly tell themselves apart, but they love one another, they can still live harmoniously in church, right? So that's how it is, okay? Um, so, Scholars noted the Romans would distinct themselves through their dressing, but the Greeks through the way they, are, uh, they reason. Scholars also noted that it's very common for women, especially well-to-do women, to be bareheaded in public. Okay? They do have hair, but it is no covering. Now, this is different from women having shaved heads or being propped up their hair to give the impression they have little or no hair. That is a sign of humiliation or shaming, okay? Or unless something tragic happened, like mourning, right? Then you shave your heads and things like that. So all these head covering, let me say this, were common practices that were familiar to the customs associated to both Celtic and pagan worship and also worship settings in the times. You get it? Okay? Now, why am I saying this? Because whatever it is, Paul seems, Apostle Paul seems to have taken that into the church and says, every man who prays with his head covered dishonors his head. And likewise, every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's as good as having her head shaved. That's why the issue okay, really here is headgear that symbolizes honor and respect for one another. And Paul goes on. Paul goes on further to say this. So he says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But a woman is the glory of men. For man did not come from women, but women from men. Neither was man created for women, but women for men. For it is this for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord's, uh, in the Lord, women is not independent of men, nor is the man independent of women. For as many, for uh, for as women come came from men, so also man is born of women. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves: Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, 
for long hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Wow. Now you understand the context, right? Now let me say this. Scholars have tried their best to understand all the different nuances during that time. What is Paul talking about? Is it about hair, uh, hang, uh, sorry, hair length, right? Is it about covering? Long hair is the woman's glory. But why is it dishonoring in this case? Isn't it about covered hair? Why do guys, uh, why must the male have it uncovered when the girls have it covered? Are angels attracted to women that don't cover hair? Could it be males having long hair is misleading to think uh, to the culture then that they are homosexuals? Let me say this, so many questions from the text alone. Now two quotes from the uh, quotes from two scholars here, I think it's helpful. So let me just put that up. So from the first one, Craig Bloomberg says this, We cannot be sure if shawls or hair are the main problem. And even though there are numerous possibilities for what use or non-use of these head coverings would have implied, all the options boils down to one or two issues. What the Corinthians did with their head mattered because of either the sexual or the religious implications of their appearance, or both. You get it? Okay. So whatever they did led to the breakdown of the identity in the religious context, and or both. So whatever they did, your head matters. And Gordon Fee, uh, also in his commentary, said this. In the final analysis, however, we simply have to admit, we don't know. We do not know. In either case, her action must have been deliberate to, must have been understood to bring shame on her head and possibly had inherit, uh, inherent in, the, in it a breakdown in the distinction between the sexes or the gender. So you can see even scholars are divided and these are the scholars who read widely commentary. So we do not really know. There are a lot of debate. But all consensus point to it led to a breakdown of the gender identity in church just by this action enough and was serious enough for Paul to bring in the whole Genesis account, the whole text down there about Paul telling, guys, remember, male and female were in this created order. That's how God created for us to be. Let me help you with these points so that as you read the passage again at home, you will know. So the first point is this. Men, or humanity, but in this case, man is the glory and image of God. It's the image and the glory of God. See, humanity, that includes both men and women, but Paul is reminding the men here especially, hey, we are created in the image of God, and our role is to bring glory to God. Somehow, not covering their head during worship maintains that order. That's for the Corinth men. Second point is this. Women was created from men as dependent helper. Dependent helper. Likewise, reminding the women that there was an order and harmony when God created women. You see, the creation of women out of men maintained that order and brought fulfillment to God's plans for humanity. In fact, Jewish tradition, okay, they understood this as male and female were complementary roles 
man alone cannot achieve God's command to rule and dominate the world. That was Jewish thinking. And women was created to complete what man was meant to fulfill by God. That's why, as a dependent helper, guys, I'm saying this to you, guys, we cannot do it without the women. And all the women in the house say... Peace be with you, uh, women. Okay, yeah. This is... uh... And the third point is this. And Paul continues to affirm equal rights, but different roles. Whatever the issues and divide are, both are from God for God's glory. Both are equal. One may come first, but different roles. Both are from God for God's glory. Everything comes from God. This is also affirmed in our definition of marriage, right? And somehow the order of distinctive gender, the gender roles and identity matters to God. Blurring or breaking this creates disorder. So Paul's issue here is that this order of fulfilling each other's role is important to God. Any act or any issue that blurs and breaks this distinction creates disorder. That's a problem. So in the case of First Corinthian Church, the women going against what's socially accepted and not wearing appropriate headgear during worship because it was culturally accepted then has been a problem. In fact, some scholars even commented that removing the headgear of the women, uh, women removing headgear during worship setting can even be associated with certain pagan culture at that time, associated with prostitution. So the bottom line is this, okay? There were a lot of challenges here. The bottom line that Paul is trying to drive at is this. I believe our Christian conduct in honouring one another towards Christian unity, roles of gender, in society, in church, and public church setting or worship setting, is a testimony of Christian love that honours God. Amen? That's what is important. Honouring one another, especially respecting gender roles, ordained by God in church and society, and especially in public settings, is important. That means how we dress, how we speak, how we relate to each other, maintain respect at all times, order and harmony towards one another, in a way that doesn't stumble or prevent people from coming to faith, is important. So maybe today, we don't need to cover our head but maybe we need to cover a lot of other parts uh, when we come to church. I don't think we are ready to be prescriptive like Paul, but let me say this. We need to be honouring in one way or another. So Paul says to the woman, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? I'm going to say today, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for you to think as acceptable worship to God? Fill in the blanks with whatever your intent is. So maybe today we can do that, okay? Uh, one of the feedback I got from last sermon is that, how come no Slido? Okay, okay, I bring Slido back. Okay, come everybody scan this QR code. And maybe you can help me with this, okay? I want to see how all participation is. I don't have a lot of time because there's sermon number two coming up right after this and I need to go for it, okay? Come. So help me with this. Okay, try to scan the QR code and if you are online, you can participate right now as well. Uh, only during the times of the service.
Now, quickly, I'm going to ask for this question now. What area do you think should, we should do better as a Christian to honour one another in church and society? And the responses there so far come from the earlier services. And I wish that, you no, know, maybe this can be a corporate thing that we can do together as church. And you can see the responses coming in already. What area do you think we should do better as Christians to honour one another in church and society? Respect, right? Honouring one another. You can see appropriate dressing. Speaking the truth in love. Showing empathy. Yeah, correct. I think so. Okay. Mutual respect. Use of mobile devices. Now, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Maybe during the sermon, right? Pay attention. And uh, how we honor one another, remind each other. Uh, also, be courteous. Okay. There's a lot for us to chew there. And hopefully you can respond. And I think that no, so many people have responded. Thank you so much for really helping me in this sermon. Now let's move on to sermon number two. Okay, today here. Uh, in the next issue, let me read this for you. And I'm going to move on here quickly. Now, so Paul says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Wow, this time he's really going after it. For your meetings do more harm than good. I wish that our services actually okay, will not be like that. And in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Know that there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead on your own private suppers. As a result, one remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. Okay, I hope you don't hear me shouting your face, right? But that was how Paul was supposed to deal. That was the tone that came out. So here's the problem. What, get, what has gotten Paul so upset is still in a worship setting when people come for church. And some go ahead with a private supper or the Lord's Supper. Some get drunk while others are hungry. And again, this on the surface might seem like another cultural uh, issue or cultural difference that may not be applicable. But the issues do remain in our church. And let me say this. Okay, let me explain the context. Now, the early church were house church movements and often gathered for meals. So the lower class citizens don't often have a house large enough. So church gatherings were often hosted by upper class Christians, those who could afford the more affluent one uh, who have more, a bigger house, right? Now, Paul has no issues with people rich or poor. Let me say this, okay? That's why he said in verse 19, there was no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. God uses different social classes to support each one, uh, one another. Amen? Yeah? But when this creates disunity, that's where the problem is. So most Corinthian homes, let me say this, like Roman homes, right? But in Corinthian homes, even archaeologists support this, that the dining would fit very few people. And you can see over there, dining fit few people. So the majority of people would have to eat in the atrium or the courtyard that could hold about 30 to 50 people. Now, it's universal during the times, whether it's in Christian setting or even Celtic or pagan worship, right, that meals 
food is always a part of the worship. So in the Corinth setting, the Christian, the Corinthian Christian setting, such meals are called love feasts or agape meal. You have heard about this term before, love feast, where wine and food are served and everyone meals together. Then after that, they will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This is familiar also in the times of Jesus, right? Jesus ate a meal, then have the supper. After that, it's called the Lord's Supper, correct? The meal and the Lord's Supper celebrated together was a distinctive mark of Christian unity during then, where they will all eat together and drink of the same cup. Here's the problem. Over time, as the church grew, cliques begin to form. Some may say, oh, logistical constraint, I cannot host so many people, or maybe host preferences. Private dining options were offered, eh? The situation became what Paul described. Those who were more affluent had lots to eat and drink and even got drunk. While other poorer workers or the ones who were in lower social class that had to work came late to the table, no food to eat. This love feast is no longer a feast of love but a love of feast. Is the rich, by their action, bullying the poor in church setting? This is also a case of dishonouring your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the situation became so bad that Paul had to write to them about it. Now today the good news is that we have no such problem in church services because we do not require everyone to eat a full meal as part of our service. Okay? Thank God, otherwise I'll be four times my size. I've got four services, you know. And we don't serve wine for our Holy Communion, so no drunk church members or pastors, okay? No drunkard problems in our church, uh, Methodist church services. But having said that, will you say that our church has no bullying issues among our fellow social, uh, among our fellow church members? Do we look out for our church family, others who had, who have nothing to eat? So what does Paul say about this? And let me read this, okay? And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why Paul is saying this, among you they are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep or you have died, right? But if you are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we will not, uh, but if we want more, we, it, but sorry, if we were more discerning with the regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Now, let me summarize. What, our, what Paul is saying in our close, okay? Now, Paul is saying this. Christ's body was broken to unite the body of Christ. Christ's body was broken so that the body of Christ as the church 
can be whole and united. Every time you eat and drink of the bread and the cup, the focus is the cup, uh, not the wine. Uh. Interestingly, right? You see the cup. Every time we come to Holy Communion, we proclaim the that Christ has died for us while we were yet sinners. Oh no. And we eat in remembrance of Christ's death and sacrifice for us. He gave up his rights out of love so that we can be whole. He was broken so that we can be united. That's important. Second thing, Christians ought to be transformed by Christ's holy love. When we come to church and partake of Holy Communion, we remember how God loves us and call us to be His church, right? Our behavior, our conduct, showing one another how, how we love one another is, is, is a statement to, as a witness to everyone, even the world outside church, what God's love is like. Not just by our profession, but by the very way we treat one another in church and honor one another. So Holy Communion really reminds us to show Christ's holy love to others. See, the world watches how Christians live our lives, how our love is like, whether we are consistent with our profession. What is our profession? Have we rebelled against your love? Have we not loved our neighbours? Have we not heard the cry of the needy? And these are words of institution in our ritual. If any of our love and action, if anything, our love and action need to bring unity and not division to dishonor one another. And in church, if we push our personal freedom and personal, personal rights, our rights of sexual expression, personal doctrinal belief, we want to have our have and have nots and break church unity in the context of this passage. Eating and drinking the cup, okay? That's like eating and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. We are guilty of sinning against the blood and the body of the Lord. That's what this passage is talking about. Now some may ask, don't, do you mean that if you have issues, we don't partake of the Holy Communion? No, I don't think that's what Scripture is saying here. Let me say this, even scholars are divided on the interpretation, okay? But I personally believe this is what Paul is saying here. Is this, do we take God's love of honouring God and honouring one another seriously? Do we reflect, you know, if our love, every time we come to church, right, do we reflect if our love for God and one another is our selfish love or it's Christ kind of love, you know? If it's a Christ kind of love, what is it? Now, the next two chapters, chapters 12, 13, 14, three chapters, you're going to cover that. That's why Paul starts to pick this this is the kind of love when you come together to show unity. And we'll cover that in the next few chapters. And Paul is saying this, if we are not discerning, our practice of love, selfish love, divisive love, will lead us to death instead of life with God. It's a challenging text between verses 29 to 32. What does it mean? Some has fallen asleep now. And even prophetic now. Gordon Fee said this, okay, and I think that it's helpful here. I believe he has it right. He says, most likely, Paul here is stepping into the prophetic role. By the Spirit, he has seen a divine cause and effect between the two, inter, uh, the, the two independent realities. The present illness of many, which in which some uh, cases have led to death, and the actions of some at the, Lord, uh, at the table of the Lord, 
who are despising church and humiliating the have-nots by going ahead with their own private meals. Helpful? Right? So by going ahead with their own personal agenda, doing their type, the divisiveness, Gordon Fee is saying, that's the reason why you are being judged. In any case, let me say this, all are equal before God, regardless of earthly status. So in church setting, whenever we come to church, we remember, okay, we come in, we strip off our ranks, we are here as children of God, we are equal before God. That's the reminder of who we are, our identity is in heaven. We are children of God, created equal. God loves us without favoritism. He didn't just die for you, He died for me as well. As a reminder, when we all die, it all goes back to the dust. And so Paul says this. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. You know, like mother like that, right? Yeah, you have to nag them and tell them this is how you should. So that when you meet together, you may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Make sense now? So this is still the thing, the, the common train, uh, the common trait that runs across. Means our Christian conduct in honoring one another for Christian unity, gender roles, church society, in public worship setting, is a testimony of Christian love that honors God. And that is what First Corinthians eleven, hopefully the two sermons in one, help us understand the passage together. How we need to honor one another through our conduct and actions. Now, let me bring out the two points again. Just a summary and then I'll close, right? So for corporate worship, gender, roles are important. Man is the image, okay? Uh, And glory of God, we must create that from man as dependent helper, equal rights but different roles, both from God, for God's glory, and order of distinctive gender roles and identity matters to God. Blurring this creates disorder. And regarding Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, Christ's body was broken to unite the body of Christ. Christians are transformed by Christ's holy love. Holy Communion reminds us to show Christ's holy love to others and all are equal before God, regardless of status. The bottom line is this. Our conduct, our Christian conduct in honouring one another for Christian unity is a testimony of Christian love that honours God. Amen? So hope you understand. Let me close, and instead of me praying for you, we are going to say this prayer that is found in our Methodist hymnal, right? Uh, you can pick it up if you want to, but I'll put the words here. He, hymn number 564 is a prayer. Note the words, and let's say this prayer together. Help each of us, gracious God, to live in such magnanimity and restraint that the head of the church may never have cause to say to any one of us, this is my body broken by 